chapter 23. If you haven't got a Bible, there's plenty out the back on the table there. And the, the message of Carl's um, sermon is seven warnings against false Christianity. So let's read from Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, For you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a whole camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish... But inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like, twice, you're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, 
If we'd lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you're the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thanks, God. Uh, before I forget, uh, there are booklets for the uh, Six Steps to Loving Your Church uh, uh, study. So growth group leaders, they're in the office, so you'll need to collect those at the end of, um, the, end of the service. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we've prayed that you would give us ears to hear, uh, sung that you would give us ears to hear, and Lord, we uh, ask again that you would do that. Uh, Lord, help us to hear Jesus' warning against false religion Help us to test ourselves and to examine ourselves. Uh, And Lord, help us to be on the lookout for false teaching uh, and false Christianity. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm not exactly a devotee of uh, Antiques Roadshow. You might find that hard to believe. But there's something about about it, isn't there? It's just, it's captivating. Maybe that's just me. Uh, But... You know, I love the, uh, these, these people these bringing in these weird oddments, you know, uh, that they have in their house and bringing them to the experts and seeing what the expert will say, what uh, conclusion the expert will give on whether this is the genuine article or not. Is this a genuine Chippendale sideboard or is it a fake imitation? Is it a genuine Wedgwood plate? Or is it an imitation, or is it actually a genuine Wedgwood plate, but from the dodgy period, you know, where they they kind of lost their mojo and they started making, uh, you know, bad plates. It's like, oh no, I'm one year out, I'm one year into the bad period. Uh, Or whatever it is, you know, and you sit there on the edge of your seat, maybe it's just me, and, uh, you know, your heart is racing, what's it going to be? Is it real? What's it going to be worth? And they go, £6,000. Yes. Yeah. The other day, I don't know if you saw it, in December or something, there was a guy who'd bought a painting for £400, £400, and he took it to Antiques Roadshow. It turned out to be a Van Dyke, I think it was, and it was worth £400,000. Now, that's not, bad, that's not a bad investment. <laughs> and so you see, there is something exciting about Antiques Roadshow. But the, the, the point is, 
There are signs and marks. You know, these ex- experts look for the telltale signs of whether this is a genuine article. They look for the, the signature or the, or the glaze or whatever it is that they're looking for. And they go, yep, no, we know this is a genuine article. There are signs and marks that tell you whether or not an antique is, is the real deal or not. And it's true of Christianity as well that there are signs and marks for working out whether a Christian and whether a a Christian church even are the genuine article. And here in Matthew 23, Jesus is uh, doing that. He's addressing the Pharisees, the religious leaders uh, of his day, and he's cursing them for their false religion. They think they're really spiritual, but they're not. They think they're the, uh, they're the, the fine Wedgwood plate, but actually they're from the dodgy period. And as Jesus goes through this chapter, he points out some of the markers of their false religion. He's doing two things, I think, in terms of how we understand this passage. He's calling us to look at ourselves. Are we like the Pharisees and the religious leaders? Is their style of Christianity, their style of religion our style. He's also warning us to look out, I think, for false uh, forms of Christianity so that we can avoid them. He's calling us to examine ourselves and he's calling us actually to watch out for false Christianities as well so that we can avoid them. So what are some of the markers and the warning signs of false Christianity? Well, Jesus gives seven woes and uh, we'll have about seven points about. But um, the first mark of false Christianity that Jesus gives is that it shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. False Christianity shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those... Enter who are trying to. Jesus has explained a little bit earlier in verse 2 how they do that. How do they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? Uh, verse 2 The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Not uh, every person or every church that says the name Jesus is a Christian church or a, or a genuine Christian. And one of the warning signs, Jesus says, of a corrupt church and a corrupt church leadership is that they tie up heavy burdens and, they, and do nothing about those things themselves. So it might be endless man-made rules. Don't watch the television. Uh, don't go dancing. That was, that was the one from a few decades ago and those rules are often hedges around the law that is television and film for instance can lead to distorted loves that is they make us love things that we ought not to love Uh, television and film can lead to distorted views of the world and distorted expectations for life and instead of saying be careful and live wisely in how you engage with uh, cinema and film and television and stuff like that. Instead of saying, subject every thought to Christ, the approach becomes, don't have anything to do with television and film because it's the tool of the devil. It's It's too dangerous. It becomes, the laws become a hedge around 
around God's principles itself. Oh, well, you know, it, you could end up there, so we'll just we'll create a fence over here so that you don't go anywhere near it. Uh, so again, the same argument is made often in terms of alcohol. The argument goes, alcohol can lead to all kinds of sins, and it can and it does. But the A argue, therefore, avoid all alcohol because you never know what can happen. It's a hedge around the law. Instead of saying, well, think about how you can honour God with film and television and uh, with the things that he's made, they create these rules. uh, You cannot, you must not. So they tie up heavy burdens that people can't lift. It might be man-made rules, but it might also be biblical principles presented without the gospel. It can be quite subtle sometimes because people's lives seem to change under those heavy ministries. That is, they once uh, were a drug addict and they're not anymore. They once uh, lived with their partner and they don't anymore. So people's lives change under these ministries, but they're not actually gospel ministries. They're rules and regulations presented without the gospel. One of the telltale signs uh, of those ministry uh, of a ministry like that is that it becomes joyless and discouraging. One of the telltale signs of a Christless Christianity is that it becomes joyless and discouraging. And it can be quite subtle, I think, because actually sometimes those ministries can be very exciting places. They can be very exciting churches, have all the uh, have all the greatest songs, uh, all the greatest spiritual experiences. But underlying that, there's this kind of deep-seated legalism. They've actually removed themselves from the gospel, from Christ. And so all the biblical principles become heavy burdens that people can't lift. False gospels are all expectations and no grace, all laws and no spirit, all about us and never about Jesus, all about today and never about what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago. All about doing and never about resting, celebrating and trusting. False Christianity is discouraging and joyless, but the true gospel is full of joy and is liberating. Because it's been achieved by Christ 2,000 years ago, and by Christ in us today. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus warns us not to hold to the kind of false Christianity, uh, this kind of false Christianity, which is full of heavy burdens, but has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. So false Christianity uh, shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces because it's too hard, it's too discouraging, Uh, It's too difficult. But false Christianity, secondly, also eagerly converts people to hell. Verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. False Christianity is not indifferent to evangelism. False Christianity may actually be captivated by evangelistic zeal. But instead of converting people to the gospel, it converts people to something other than the gospel, to hell, as a shorthand. 
I think we tend to often fall into the trap of thinking there's two kinds of Christianity. There's true Christianity, which is evangelistically zealous, and there's false Christianity, which is a closed shop. But actually, it's more nuanced than that. Jesus is saying there can be false Christianity, which is very open, willing to have anyone, but actually slipping people the wrong message. Evangelistic zeal is no measure of gospel faithfulness. You can be a missionary and be an unbelieving hypocrite. You can leave every possession and give your life to other people and yet be unconverted. You can take every evangelistic opportunity at school or at work, in your home, at the gym, wherever you find yourself, and yet be leading people further and further into darkness rather than into light. It's not fervour that saves us, you see, it's Jesus. It's not zeal, but dying with Christ and being raised with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. I always think those words of Paul in Romans chapter 10 are so chilling. They have zeal for God, but without knowledge. False Christianity shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. False Christianity eagerly converts people to hell Third, false Christianity also makes excuses and finds loopholes. Jesus warns in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And Jesus goes on to list kind of other similar examples. False religion, you see, makes excuses for sin. The Pharisees had these neat little tricks for getting out of things. So if you swore an oath uh, on the temple, you could get out of doing what you'd promised. But if you swore an oath on the gold of the temple, well, then you had to do it. It's kind of like a glorified version of, I had my fingers crossed. I remember, I I can almost actually vividly remember a particular occasion standing outside the kindergarten uh, and, you know, one of, one of my friends going, uh, do you promise, uh, you know, cross your heart and hope to die? And I'm like, yeah, totally, totally. And, you know, you've got your fingers crossed behind your back. And he goes, show me your hands. And you're like, oh, yeah. And then he goes, you know, and then you're like this, you know, you're crossing your legs. Uh, and he goes, oh, you got your legs crossed. And then you're like, yeah, cross my toe. Uh, and then, you know, later on he goes, you promised. And you go, yeah, my toe's crossed. <laughs> Oh, come on. You know, this is that high pitched. Oh, come on. You can't do that. The whiny voice. Anyway. But that's what, that's what the Pharisees were kind of doing here. They were doing it with God. They were, they were saying, Yeah, I'll do that. I'll make a promise. Uh, but actually, that, they just had their fingers crossed. They didn't really mean it. And they were looking for ways that they could get out of it. You see, false Christianity finds loopholes and escape clauses. But true Christianity actually owns sin and seeks for faithfulness. So true Christianity asks, how can I uh, preserve my integrity and honour Christ as I uh, enjoy this wine or enjoy this beer? False Christianity asks, How much can I drink of this beer and wine before it's a sin? How smashed is too smashed? 
And unfortunately, too many people say, well, as long as I don't pass out, I'm okay. That's the kind of the line that they draw. But true Christianity asks, how can I honour Christ and preserve my integrity as I enjoy this? True Christianity asks, how can I honour God with the money that he's given me? False Christianity asks, how much do I have to give before I can spend the rest on myself? I've got the 10% locked away, the rest is mine. True Christianity asks, how can I preserve my integrity and the integrity of my boyfriend or my girlfriend? How can I preserve our integrity and honour Christ in our relationship? False Christianity asks, how far can I go before it's a sin? You see, false Christianity looks for the excuses and the loopholes. Ah, it was the temple, not the gold of the temple. True Christianity seeks after faithfulness, whatever it costs, Lord. My life is yours anyway. False Christianity shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It eagerly converts people to hell. It makes excuses and finds loopholes. Fourth, false Christianity is often faithful in small things in order to ignore the big things. So verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, uh, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. It's overly simplistic, you see, to think uh, that legalism is just caring about what's right. Because, actually, all Christians should care about what's right, shouldn't they? I mean, we should seek after Christ. We should follow Jesus' example. So, actually, to be zealous about what's right, to kind of care about that, is godly. So what's the difference, then, between that and legalism? What's the difference between true Christianity and legalism? Well, I think... One of the key marks of legalism is that people use the faithfulness in small things to excuse them for doing the big things. So in this example, the Pharisees were tithing their herbs. That is, they'd grow their herbs and they'd take 10% of them and they'd give it to God uh, as a kind of an offering or as a sacrifice. They cared about uh, doing that small thing, making sure that they were right even to that small detail... But at the same time as doing that, they neglected showing compassion and seeking justice for the oppressed. My fridge has a Sabbath mode. Uh, I don't know if any other... I've never met anyone else who has a fridge with a Sabbath mode, but my fridge has a Sabbath mode. So you can open the fridge and you can press a button. Chris is nodding. He's... Well, he repairs fridges. Maybe he's had to repair a Sabbath mode before. But, But you open the fridge, you press a button. I, I don't know what the combo is. I've never used it. But... It sort of turns, it's for 24 hours or more than 24 hours, it stops the light coming on when you open the door. So you press it on Friday afternoon, and then for the whole Sabbath, uh, the light won't come on when you open the door. Because for some Orthodox Jews, you're not allowed to make cause electricity to flow on the Sabbath. That's uh, one of their, so they won't, 
they won't press the button in the elevator or they won't press the button at the traffic lights and all that kind of thing. And you see, the truth is it's actually not that inconvenient to use the Sabbath mode. It's, you know, it's actually pretty achievable to go, yep, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to use the light switch on, on, uh, on the set, well, for them, the Saturday. I'm not going to press uh, the button in the elevator. That's actually pretty doable. And the, get to the end of it and you go, yep, I'm giving my life to God. But actually, that's as far as it goes. And that's what Jesus is targeting here. It's people who do the small things and go, yep, I have given my life to God. But it doesn't go any further than that. I was looking at a church website the other day and they were advertising that they, as a church, were doing 21 days of fasting. I don't know if that's a particular program or one that they'd made up. But there were booklets that you could get as a, you know, as a member of the church to join in this 21 days of fasting. I don't have a problem with people if they want to fast or not, but I think the particular danger of things like that is is that you you sign up for the program, you do the 21 days, you read the Bible, uh, and you get to the end of it and you go, yep, I've given my life to God. And you neglect mercy and justice and kindness and faithfulness. And the same goes for the kind of the evangelical good works, like reading the Bible and praying. You read the the Bible after dinner and you think to yourself, yep, I'm giving my life to God. And the next door neighbour's, you know, wheel falls off the car and you, I don't have the the time to, to give you a hand. You strain out a gnat. Jesus says, and swallow a camel. Jesus wants all of our lives, big and small. And if he only has a bit of it, then we need to admit that and ask him to take the rest of it as well. It might be as simple as saying, Dear Jesus, I've done the small things and I don't really want to show mercy to the poor or defend justice but please take all of my life. False Christianity shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It eagerly converts people to hell. It makes excuses and finds loopholes. It's often faithful in small things in order to uh, ignore the big things. And fifth and sixth, false Christianity is good on the outside but rotten inside. Jesus says in verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I've kind of lumped these two woes together, whoops, because they're very similar. Uh, They're both about external cleanness and internal filthiness. I've often wondered how a cup or a dish could be clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. I mean, 
sort of thought, wouldn't you notice? I mean, <laughs> maybe it's just me who wonders about the mechanics of how that would work. But I thought, I guess it's a bit like a teacup. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm always disturbed by my teacups with the tea stains inside. But you can clean the outside of the cup, you know, and you put it away on the shelf and it looks, it looks quite nice, you know, and then you get it down to give to a guest and you go, oh, crumbs, I can't give that to them, you know. Or, uh, you know, it's, or at work, it's the same, you know, when you're at work and you have shared facilities or something like that, you know, and you think, oh, you just grab that cup off the shelf because it, it looks like the best, you know, the most suitable cup and you get it down and it's actually filthy on the inside. And that's what Jesus is saying that some people's religion is like. They're like the teacup on the shelf, great on the outside, but when you actually get it down and you have a look inside, it's stained, it's, it's a bit gross, to be honest. They're like whitewashed tombs. No matter how nicely you paint a tomb, it's still full of dead, dead bodies. Jesus says they're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus gives a, a kind of a similar example of this in verse 5. He says, everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. The phylacteries, they would, they would get uh, scripture verses and, and tie them on their foreheads and bind them on their arms because God said you should write his words on their foreheads and so they thought well if we do that if we if we put them in little boxes and tie them to our heads and that will will be particularly devoted to God and if we tie those scripture verses on our arms then uh, it's a bit like what would Jesus do isn't it really I suppose the what would Jesus do bracelet I think it's important to be careful here uh, because in a sense all of us are like whitewashed tombs. That is, all of us look better on the outside than we do on the inside, right? All of us. Uh, all of us, you know, people often think of us probably better than we think of ourselves because we know the, own, the, the, the sins in our own heart. But Jesus is being very specific in the kind of hypocrisy that he's targeting. He's targeting Specifically, the hypocrisy of false religion. And the difference is encapsulated in verse 12, earlier on. Jesus says, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the hypocrisy of false religion makes a great show of religion on the outside, but inside is actually far from God. Its goal is self-exaltation, given by, given by greed and hypocrisy, and self-indulgence. And the telltale sign of that kind of hypocrisy is that when it's exposed, instead of being owned, it's denied. And instead of being dealt with, the person throws themselves into kind of extra-religious activities. So perhaps hypocrisy becomes evident in your life. Maybe someone points it out to you. Maybe you hear a sermon and you think, yes, I'm a hypocrite. But instead of going, yes, I'm a hypocrite and dealing with that with God, what you do is you sign up for more rosters uh, or you join a local uh, volunteer organisation so that you can make yourself feel as if actually you're doing okay with God and so that you can make others think that really you're doing okay with God. That's false Christianity. True Christianity, when hypocrisy comes to light, true Christians 
fall on their knees. They, they confess it, they admit it, they go, yes, actually, there is hypocrisy in my life and I need to deal with that. And they deal with it with God. They confess it and they cling to Jesus. Jesus is targeting the false Christianity of religious hypocrisy which looks good on the inside on the outside but is filthy on the inside. So false Christianity shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, it eagerly converts people to hell, it finds excuses, uh, or makes excuses and finds loopholes, it's often faithful in small things so it can ignore big things. It's good on the outside but rotten inside and finally false Christianity reveres the Bible and God but rejects Jesus. Verse 29, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, If we'd lived in the days of our forefathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you'll flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so you will come upon you all the righteous blood that's been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. The religious leaders of Jesus' day lived in a state of self-denial. They venerated the prophets that their forefathers had killed. And they said, we wouldn't have done that. No, we're better than they, they were. They look back on the Old Testament and they go, thank goodness we're not like that. And I think actually it's kind of easy for us to fall into the same trap, isn't it? To look back on the Old Testament and go, well, I'm glad I'm not like Samson uh, or Abraham, you know, who lied twice about his wife so that he wouldn't be killed. Or I'm glad I'm like David, uh, who you know, committed adultery and then killed that person. Or I'm glad I'm not like the Pharisees, you know, who, who didn't really uh, think that there was anything wrong with them. Jesus says to these Pharisees, they revere the scriptures, they revere God, but ultimately their pride means... They reject Jesus. Ultimately, all the other marks of false Christianity are simply results of this fundamental mistake. That is, to reject Jesus out of pride is to embrace false Christianity. Look at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. True religion, true Christianity is Christianity that embraces Jesus. That's the fundamental characteristic of true Christianity. It's Christianity that when Jesus opens his arms wide and invites us to come, we go running. Jesus did that to the Pharisees and they, and they didn't do they, No, we don't need you. 
We've got our life together. It's okay. Yes, your heart will still be full of sin and your heart will lead you astray and you'll stumble and fall and you'll be acutely aware that the outside looks better than the inside. But when you see that, when you see that sin inside of you and when you see Jesus on the cross with his arms stretched out wide, you'll run to him because you know that he can deliver you from sin and from the evil of your sin. And you'll know that no one else can. I don't know what you think or feel after hearing Jesus' curses on false Christianity. But if you feel condemned or uncertain then please hear Jesus saying, I'd love to gather you under my arms like a hen gathers her chicks. And maybe if after hearing all these curses on false Christianity, you feel proud and self-assured, then please see Jesus standing there with arms open wide, saying how I would love to gather you under my arms as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come uh, before you uh, as sinners in need of a saviour. Uh, as sinners in need of Jesus Christ. Lord, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Lord, the best of what we've done is not acceptable in your sight because all of our actions and our thoughts are tarred by sinful motives and sinful desires. Uh, and so, Lord, we come with empty hands and sin-stained hearts. But we come, Lord, because you've invited us out of your grace. And you said, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, shall not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the sin which stains us, and Lord, we ask that through Jesus Christ, you would pour out your Holy Spirit in us so that every day we will be more, made more and more like him. And Lord, if there are any of us who are hard-hearted and self-assured and proud and arrogant in our spiritual status, Lord, we ask that you would humble us and drive us to Christ. Lord, we pray that none of us would hear the gospel over and over again, but stay away from Jesus because we don't think that we need him. Lord, help us to see him there hanging on the cross, his arms stretched out wide to embrace all those who would come to him. Lord, we ask that you would enable us 
to come to him and find life. We ask it for his sake. Amen.